Welcome to Kansas Rural Center Presents, the Kansas Rural Center's podcast on farming, agricultural policy, civic engagement, and much more happening in the Sunflower State. I'm your host, Ryan Gertzen-Regeer, the program and admin manager here at KRC, and in this series of our podcast, we're presenting reflections from Kansas farmers about the upcoming 2023 Farm Bill and how it could assist farmers with improving soil health and conservation practices on their farms. Co-hosting this episode with me is Zach Pastora, environmental champion and the president of KRC's board of directors. And joining us to talk about the 2023 Farm Bill is Jack Geiger, an organic farmer and star of the Geiger Farm YouTube channel. Jack, would you mind telling us a little bit more about yourself and your connection to farming? Uh, the star uh, of the YouTube might be overrated, Ryan, but uh, we, we are active and, and I have used that platform to attempt to mentor uh, organic farmers, beginning organic farmers. So uh, I am Jack Geiger. Uh, I farm in the northeast corner of the state uh, in Brown County, and I am at the eastern edge of Brown County. And so uh, you know, to the other listeners in the state, there is, you know, a uh, maybe a perception that we farm in God's country, and I wouldn't disagree with them. I, uh, you know, many times we we watch the rain, and uh, it just glides over the rest of the Kansas, and it opens up when it gets here, uh, but we're very fortunate. Uh, I am a sixth generation. My family's been here since before the Civil War. We have been certified organic. Father started the transition in 89. Uh, I came home from K-State with a degree in agronomy in 93, and I have full-time farmed since 1993. It took a long time to get access to land. You know, the problems that we see today are the problems of the last 30 years. Perhaps they're getting worse as land concentrates, but I was able to finally buy land in 2008. And uh, I bought a farm again last year in 2021 that adjoins my current holdings. And so with family, we have a section, a little over a section here, contiguous ground that has been, uh, all of it's been certified since 2011. Uh, but dad's portion has been certified since 1989. So... I am a long-term uh, mixed production is what we do on the farm. We have a small feedlot. We do retail meat sales. We also do wholesale meat sales. In addition, we're, we produce seed and we produce human consumption grains. For instance, wheat that does wind up in Kansas mills. After it leaves the Kansas mill, I don't know how much of it is retailed in the state of Kansas, but some is retailed in the state of Kansas. We also sell some organic feed grains, and those wind up in value-added Kansas uh, operations as well. There are certified organic chickens within the state of Kansas, and there are uh, more chickens directly adjacent, uh, you know, right across the river here in the state of Missouri. And so, and there's organic chickens in Nebraska, right across the border in Nebraska. And so we're kind of in a fortunate spot. There is an organic feed outfit in the northeast corner of the state here, and they will buy any organic feed grain, uh, corner beans that are for sale. So that's a little bit about me, Ryan. Yeah, it sounds like you certainly stay busy. Um, on top of all those things, you also do a fair bit of mentoring and, and working with 
other farmers, they're looking to to do some organic production themselves, or maybe just beginning farmers in general. Uh, yeah, what is that like for you? I have to tell a little story there. So in 2010, I went to a board meeting, an OCA board meeting. And the first rule of not getting on a board is never go to the meetings because invariably, occasionally, if you show up to a meeting, you wind up on a board. Well, to make a long story short, in 2010, I attended a meeting of OCA International and I wound up on the board. Uh, I've served on the board for the previous 10 years. I'm on the board currently. I term out in another year, but to make a long story short, I was blessed to serve on that board with another Kansan, Demetrius Stevens from Western Kansas, who is, you know, a decade, probably 15 years younger than me yet. But one of the initiatives that we started on the board was, you know, the YouTube grew out of that and the mentoring organic farmers grew out of my involvement on that board. And so it also, you know, grew out of me maturing as a farmer. Uh, you know, I have children that assist in the operation now. And so my workflow has changed a little bit. <laughs> I don't have 12 hour days anymore. Uh, my days are becoming a little bit freer. And so anyway, I mentor farmers uh, basically domestically here in the U.S. through YouTube. It does have a foreign reach. You know, I engage with people in foreign countries that have questions about U.S. organic production, but primarily my mentees could be construed to be in the central U.S. and then all the way east to Pennsylvania and southern New York. A lot of people don't realize that, but the agricultural production region that I am in basically goes all the way to the Canadian border. It goes south to the Mississippi Delta. I am kind of at the western edge of it here because I am in corn bean country, uh, but it extends east all the way to the east coast. So, you know, I have mentees in Pennsylvania. I've interacted with guys in New York. Currently, the probably there's three in Kansas, one in Indiana, a uh, couple in Missouri. And so it's just people in basically the corn belt of America, primarily. It's, it's kind of uncanny how that, uh, the geographical similarities within that region. And so some of the similar things that I do on my farm, that's applicable over that whole region. If you go south far enough, I have friends in Mississippi who I discuss things with, but my friends in Mississippi don't always get a frost. And so they have to, and they farm, you know, in effect, two crops a year, every year, because they never get frost. And so I'm not familiar with that system. I can't really help them. I'm not familiar with their geography. Uh, they also irrigate a lot. So I try and talk to things that I am able to speak to and, and the things that I'm familiar with. And that's basically mixed grain and livestock production in the central U.S. And uh, just for those who don't know the lingo and are listening, uh, OCIA is the Organic Crop Improvement Association, right? Yes. Yeah. Sorry. So, sorry about that. OCI is one of the largest and oldest uh, organic certifiers. Our roots go back to the early mid 80s. I think that 87 was the first year that we offered certification. 88 was the first real year where there was structure and there was order to the organization. In the certification year of 89, it was a lot more uh, codified, if you will, and it became a professional organization. 
And so that was the history there. There were guys working on it in the early 80s. But the concept, you know, of certification, OCA is one of the first. And if you go back in, in the history of the organic certifiers, many of the spinoffs of the U.S. certification agencies have their origin within OCIA. Basically, you know, there's an organizational joke that uh, people would come to OCA and learn how to do something, and then they would go do it themselves. And we, we in effect, mentored organic certifiers. And so, you know, we have a long history in the organic certification within the U.S. Yeah. Thanks for expanding on that. Um, and I'll just note for anyone who's interested, you can find out more, I think, at OCIA.org. So, Jack, I'm curious if you would say just a little bit more about some of the aspects of farming um, that you really enjoy or, you know, what where's the passion come from? Why do you do it? It's clear that you have, you know, a passion for educating others and um, growing, growing things, I assume. But are there you know, aspects of the farming that you, you feel like you consistently, you know, get up in the morning and you say, yeah, this is going to be good. What do you like? Uh, uh, two things there come to mind, Ryan, you know, I am a German, you know, we did the, we did the 23andMe genetic test, my wife and I, and it, it turns out that I am 100% European. And of that, I think about 87% of it is what you call French German. And so, I am a German. I love building things. And, uh, you know, there's a fair amount of Germans who like building machines, but there's also a certain portion of Germans who like building farms. And they think of their farm as a machine or as a tool. And, you know, it is always, it has always given me satisfaction. You know, I can mechanic, but I hate doing it. Uh, I have brothers that love to mechanic. I have brothers that are professional mechanics. But to me, the, the similar fascination of the machine, I enact that out on a larger scale of the farm. And there's a whole bunch of, you know, parts of that. There's the thrift. There's re recycling. It, it's making the farm work like a machine. So that, that is probably the greatest fascination for me, Ryan. But the reality is, is that I'm a sixth generation and I just can't escape my ancestry. Uh, my family's been farming here so long. And, uh, you know, I already have my uh, cemetery plot purchased. And I will lay with seven other generations, with seven generations of my family. Uh, unfortunately, one of my brothers lost one of their children. And so, you know, there are seven generations of my family in that cemetery. And so... But, uh, you know, I joke with my children, you know, that if they just take up the mantle and become farmers, they can be seventh generation. And there is an old, uh, uh, I think it ties back to the Volga Deutsch that we were talking about, but there's an old <laughs> tradition among the, the Germans who settled in uh, 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 Russia that after seven generations, you became uh, what you call a bonded serf. And what that meant was that you can't leave the land. You physically can't leave the land. You are a subject of, uh, you know, the empire or whatever. And so I joke with my children, if we can just hold on a little bit longer, they can be bonded serfs. <laughs> yeah. And for, for context, before we started recording here, Jack and I were talking about uh, ancestries in that in that area of the world. And so, <laughs> yeah, bonded serfs that. Yeah, that's an interesting, interesting idea. 
<laughs> well, it, it may be it may be working, Ryan, because right now all three of our children, uh, you know, I was blessed with a spouse that has similar background to myself, and uh, all three of our children are currently expressing interest in the farm. Uh, all jokes yeah. aside, and uh, yeah. we have worked hard to uh, you know facilitate that in our children. Yeah, excellent. Uh, so. We're talking about the conservation title of the farm bill with this podcast and uh, maybe some, you know, to energize people about that and, and maybe some ways that it can be made better to, to help farmers. In the past, we interviewed um, some farmers who did, I guess, not organic production. Uh, we could call it more conventional. Some people, I guess, say traditional, but um, you're, you're doing a different production style than our previous interviewees. Um, would you talk just a little bit about what soil health looks like um, within your production style there in organic? Um, I don't know if you use all of the kind of standard USDA defined things of, you know, cover crops or, or uh, rotational grazing, buffer strips, et cetera. Um, but I think organic is listed as, as one of those as well. So yeah, would you expand on that just a little bit on your farm? So, uh, to be a uh, successful organic farmer, Ryan, you have to make soil health your number one concern. It's as simple as that. You can't buy, you know, uh, it might be a, a poor usage of term, but you can't buy silver bullets. You have to build solutions. And this goes back to what I was talking about of my German ancestry of wanting to build things and doing it on a farm scale. And so, you can't look at one piece of my operation and say, aha, that's how he makes his money, or aha, we'll do the enterprise analysis on that single facet of the operation, and we will be able to get a snapshot of his operation, because uh, soil health and managing your farm as a living and breathing and you know, basically honoring the land requires that you focus on soil health, period. You know, I have mentees that come into organics and they try and mirror the conventional system, which is basically a prescription based uh, silver bullet, short term instant gratification system. They try and mirror that in organics and invariably they will have a short term success or two, but they will have long term failure because they do not try and manage the farm as a as a machine where efficiencies overlap and efficiencies interact you know uh the very simplest way for me to describe that is livestock i think that organic farms have to have livestock and so part of the livestock you know we could talk for an hour of how i make the livestock work but i'll give you just a little bitty brief thing so right now i'm getting ready to raise a wheat crop and part of that wheat crop is i need fertility and so the fertility right now, I'm spreading manure on my farm. That fertility, where that's coming from, where that manure is coming from, is, is last year's wheat crop, uh, I baled the straw. And during the winter, I bed the cattle on that straw. And I build huge mounds of manure. Because cows, uh, strange as it may seem, they like laying on something that's warm and dry. And a bedding mound is warm and dry no matter how cold the weather is. And uh, anybody who's ever watched a cow, when they stand up first thing in the morning, they they do their duty. And uh, so it, ironically, bedding piles do 
concentrate manure and you take a, a high carbon, low nitrogen, which is what straw residue is, and you mix it with manure and urine and suddenly you have a manure source that uh, you know is incredibly stabilized. The high nitrogen content of the excrement binds with the high carbon content in the straw and it makes a perfect manure. And so I am spreading uh, these bedding piles on wheat ground where hopefully, you know, in the next month I will be planting a wheat crop. And so that's an example of a synergy. That's an example of building soil health. The negative part of that is that I am, uh, you know, due to my mechanization and I am highly mechanized. Our operation is highly mechanized. Uh, unfortunately, that high degree of mechanization requires a high a large amount of petroleum. But uh, back to the soil health thing, one one thing that I want to point out, Ryan, very important, a mental calculation that I do every year. So we grow enough soybeans that if we pressed our soybeans to yield the soybean oil, we would be able to power our machine fleet and still have residual oil left. And so, you know, that is something that I have always done. Uh, but soil health is the basis. It's the key. You have to focus on soil health, period, if you want to succeed in organic agriculture long term. So for farmers who aren't in organic and maybe are uh, just using tillage um, and thinking about moving to a no-till system or from no-till to adding cover crops and rotational grazing, you know, those are steps that people can take to get into more soil health methods on their farm. Jack, would you expand a little bit more on some of the other soil health practices you might use uh, now or, or maybe want to use in the future? So the uh, I, I was being a little bit in the clouds, and I'll try and come back down to earth. So there's two answers here, Ryan. Uh, my mentees, they're so excited about organic no-till. And that is where all of their interest comes from. And basically, they're guys that are under 30 years old. Uh, and I, to be honest with you, I am not uh, experienced with that. And so I feel very uncomfortable trying to give them advice. Uh, you know, I usually attempt to refer them to some people who are more familiar with that. That being said, the specific practices, obviously, we're certified organic. Obviously, we're using pretty much everything on the list. Uh, I am responsive to this, you know, decreased tillage and increased residue cover. Uh, you know, I do fall under the category of a full-till farmer, but I'm not a bad person. Uh, <laughs> because I'm trying to rotate my crops and uh you know i don't winter fallow i don't leave soil bare in winter uh you know what are the what are the things the soil health guys talk about leave a living root in the soil keep the soil covered uh you know i try and follow those things and when i do till uh you know i try and maintain residue cover i don't strip till i still do treat my fields as you know individual production units but through time, I have reduced my tillage and I'm using cover crops more and more all the time, especially when I figured out how to, you know, utilize cattle more on the cover crop portion of the rotation. So anyway, the practices, you know, good organic farmers, you got to have cover crops, you got to rotate, uh, rotational grazing, always done that, but I am becoming better with that. 
uh, field strips, you know, pollinator, whatever you want to call native zone. We do actually have a riparian acre and a half native zone right next to the creek that runs through our farm. I work hard to keep the cows out of there and try and keep it as a somewhat native area. But, you know, all of the practices, if your focus is soil health, if that is your focus rather than the individual practice, then through time and with just a little nudge here and there, you're able to, you know, push that and find new things that help you get to that goal of soil health. Awesome. Thank you. Uh, and Jack, I'm, I'm curious how you started uh, acquiring these practices and Kansans get a number of, of, of farm payments from the farm bill annually. Are you a participant in some of these farm bill programs and specifically the conservation programs that are offered through the farm bill? And is, is that a reason why you may continue exploring conservation elements on your own? because the farm bill makes that possible. So going back earlier in the talk and, and the whole German thing and, and loving the intricacy of the farm and interweaving stuff, I, I Zach, I, I kind of avoid participation in the government program. So I do the things I do because the things I do make me money. They limit my risk. They increase my diversity. You know, I could lie and say I'm doing this for altruistic reasons, but really the, the bigger reason that I do these things is because number one, they pay. And number two, the farm is in better shape now than when I took it over. You can see the results, you know, and in the last couple of years, you know, my conventional neighbors have gotten older and I have had probably at least three and maybe four tell me that my farm looks good and that is a source of pride for me uh and some of these are very large conventional farmers and when they you know these are 70 and 80 year old men and when they you know look at my farm and they know that i'm organic and they tell me that the farm is improving and that it looks better than when i bought it you know and if i can make money making things better and being more uh more of an environmental steward if you will it's just a win-win. It's just a win-win. But going back to the government programs, Zach, no, I'm I'm not a big fan of government programs. Government programs, you know, I report my acres and I participate in the PLC program, but it's basically I'm there in case of a disaster. Uh, you know, we had bad drought here a couple of years ago and I did receive a livestock there was a payment based upon livestock and livestock acres. And uh, I'm trying to think what dry year that was. That was probably 2018. But as far as the conservation programs, no. Everything that I've done, I've done on my own. And I've done it slowly and methodically. And, you know, from interacting with other farmers who have adopted those practices, I'm not a revolutionary. I'm not doing anything crazy out here that hasn't been done before. Uh, you know, that's the conservative, uh, the conservative landowner in me. I'm not this great experimenter who's trying new avant-garde things. I'm basically going back in time to find out what grandpa did or what a neighbor did and worked it, that worked for them. And then I take that idea and I try and replicate it on my farm. And to do that, it doesn't require a lot of government assistance. It requires a, a uh, ready pupil, if you will, who's willing to, you know, pay attention to lessons. 
is <laughs> since since you're not big on on using some of those programs, this may uh, not be a a good question for you. But you know, there is some talk, particularly in other countries, about uh, you know requirements for farmers to do certain practices or or punitive measures, kind of the the levers of government to either be an incentive or a, or a regulation, a punitive thing, and. I imagine, um, like Secretary Vilsack uh, recently talked about that you know the strength of the U.S. system is incentives and not requirements for our farm community. Um, I mean, you'd rather not be put in that position, I assume, for regulation, right? I'm I'm a big fan of Australia's government subsidy system, Ryan. In Australia, they eliminated direct farmer subsidies. You know, there was a period of pain, if you will, but by all accounts, the system is stabilized, if you will. I'm not, I'm more of a fan of that system than I am of our system. I, I, I'm not a big fan of direct subsidies. I, I think that market forces have the ability to push people in directions, uh, you know, that would be beneficial for all of society. And as climate becomes more extreme and more variable, I'm pretty sure that it will become readily apparent that uh, we're going to have to adopt uh, risk mitigation strategies and and we can't just, you know, corn and bean ourselves to death. We can't. It's not stable. So. Now, we, uh, I've been talking with uh, a number of beginning farmers who do like especially crops, you know, fruits and vegetables and stuff, and they have um, much less access to um, subsidies for, for crop insurance or even crop insurance options for our disaster, disaster recovery options for their kind of crops. Are you able to get into the same uh, crop insurance programs that other farmers who aren't organic are, or how does that play for you? So yes, and and they're expanding the organic crop insurance options, Ryan. There's a big push to get people involved in that, and uh, you know my story for that is my first cousin was a is a crop insurance salesman, and he came to my farm like five years ago, and he offered me a plan. And uh, at that time, I think that he was going to set he was offering me a revenue protection plan. But he only wanted to guarantee my wheat price at like uh, six fifty or seven dollars a bushel, and uh, my remark to Jeff, you know, my cousin, was that uh, Jeff, I've never sold wheat for less than seven bucks. So you trying to guarantee me that when I'm getting ten to twenty dollars a bushel for milling grade organic wheat, uh, you know, and you want me to give you a couple thousand bucks for this policy? And I've never had a disaster. It's just there were no dollars and cents in it. So uh, I cannot speak to the guys coming in. Maybe they do need crop insurance, but I I do not crop insure and I will never crop insure, period. There's enough resilience built in my system that crop insurance is uh, superfluous to me. It's actually an economic drag. But that comes back to the the system and the diversity and and you know uh, the the story I tell you know Ryan is that we have ten crops on our farm at any given time any given point in time we have ten crops growing and if five of those crops yield we we get by we survive to farm another year if ten of the crops yield we have a bumper year 
And, uh, you know, I joke that, you know, we average about seven, seven and a half crops success every year. And my wife, she likes to joke, well, we, we, we have 4.99. <laughs> so it's all terms of, <laughs> it's all terms of perspective, but, uh, we have a high degree of uh, uh, risk mitigation, if you will, built into the operation. So not a big fan of crop insurance. Yeah, I'm not going to discourage others from using it if they feel that it's right for them. And, and you know, I'm kind of thankful that the government provides it. Uh, I'm not thankful when the crop insurance creates uh, perverse incentives or, you know, unintended consequences. And, uh, you know, looking at the farm system as a whole, it seems to me that our current crop insurance program has encouraged the production of corn and soybeans to the detriment of more diversity within our operations. And so I don't think it's necessarily a good thing. Well, that's kind of curious to me, Jack. And, you know, I was reviewing, we're in our last year of the current farm bill where uh, Congress is getting ready to uh, prepare for the 2023 farm bill. And I was looking back at the payments that Kansas has received uh, on the farm and and from 1995 to 2020, we had uh, close to $25 billion. And over 80% of that went to commodity payments, about $13 billion, about $6 billion in crop insurance. Okay, so roughly 80% or more went to uh, those commodities and, and crop insurance for, like you said, a limited number of crops. We're talking corn. We're talking wheat and soybeans and sorghum. And of all of those commodity payments, the $13 billion, about 88% of that benefit went to 20% of the Kansas farms. Okay. So now I'm asking you, how can we change, transform the farm bill in 2023 to help the food system in Kansas and across America. What exactly does that look like? Talk about diversified agricultural system. If we're subsidizing corn and beans and wheat, are we getting there fast enough? And, and what are we doing to our environment and the health to try to make that happen? I know that's a lot at you, but curious uh, how you want to handle that. Uh, could I pass Zach? That question is too big. Man. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm glad, you know, I, be, before you asked that question, I was clumsily attempting to say the point that you just put the facts and figures to. So the facts and the figures say that our, uh, the operations are getting larger our rural areas are depopulating uh, government program subsidies to these large mega farms is increasing. All of our, all of our metrics are going in the wrong direction. They're going in the wrong direction and we're literally hollowing out our rural areas. And uh, you know, your question, Zach, is probably above my pay grade. I'm just a farmer out here in rural Kansas trying to make a living. Uh, uh, you know, I have seen in my lifetime, I have seen land go from when I started farming, uh, coming out of the eighties, you know, uh, 400 bucks was high price land. 
the really good land was 700 bucks. And I remember when $700 would buy you about the best acre of land in Brown County. And that was coming out of the farm crisis of the 80s. And, you know, now we have land that is valued in excess of 15,000 a tillable acre. And, uh, and it's, it, it could be worth that, Zach. I don't know. I'm not, you know, I'm not a banker. I'm not a, a financier. I did buy a farm last fall. And I did pay a price that if you told me I was going to pay it 20 years ago, I would, uh, I would have laughed you. I would have put you in an insane asylum. I mean, the, the, the contrast is that sharp. Uh, you know, the, the pandemic focused a lot of people's attention in ways that it hasn't been focused before. Uh, when people literally went to grocery stores and meat aisles were empty, and uh you know the fresh vegetable aisle was basically an apple and a bag of carrots or something it, it wasn't much uh you know it it shocked people and it illuminated you know perhaps a little bit of the inconsistencies throughout our system uh but i can't diagnose that i can just tell you that there's something wrong there and i try not to be part of the system that is wrong and uh, to your credit, uh, you've uh, you've done well, Jack. You, you you know you got a diversified uh, crop system. You're making money uh, from from what you're telling me. Um, I'm curious, what keeps people from uh, adopting a, a farm strategy like you have? And why do we have so many uh, farmers in Kansas and across America? still uh with without a diversified uh conservation minded farm system and is there a role for uh, a farm bill to help uh make that transition for others uh that's a big question uh you know the reality or i hate saying that but i keep saying the reality the uh uh i lived very humbly for a number of years to build the lifestyle that I have. And it's contingent upon a bunch of people helping me. I had older neighbors, you know, the farm that I'm on, it was a preferential sale from a neighbor who basically, you know, gave me subsidized, subsidized terms. It was a very friendly sale. And the sale that was completed, you know, the farm that I purchased last fall, it was, it was a slightly subsidized sale. It was from the same family estate. And, uh, you know, the reality is, is that I have, I have had a lot of people help me. Uh, you know, I didn't build this, this, my farm is not Shangri-La, you know, it's not, it's not the epitome of whatever. It's just what I've done with the time that I have, but it can be duplicated. It takes time, Zach. Uh, anything worth doing takes time. And so many people think that agriculture or the farm, it's, it's like a widget factory where you put A, B, C in and you get D, E, F, G out. And it's not like that. It's a vocation, if you will. It's a lifetime calling. If you got a, if you got a problem with ADHD or instant gratification, farming is not the place to be. I mean, it's, 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 it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. It's a lifetime marathon. 
but you know, one of the things that, that, uh, helped me and I try and, you know, I try and share these stories to my mentees because quite often they come from the instant gratification background that they want to do a to yield B. They want to do B and instantly get C and life is not that simple. And the farm is not that simple. But if you adopt, you know, some of the uh, uh, strategic things, you know, that our grandparents told us, like a stitch in time saves nine, you know, anybody who went to K-State and worked in agronomy had a professor named uh, Stanley Ehler, Dr. Ehler. And Dr. Ehler had a bunch of quotes. And, uh, you know, Dr. Ehler's story was basically he starved out on the farm in the 80s. He was, you know, 20 years older than me. He was actually in production agriculture and went broke farming. And then he went to the university to teach people, you know, the basics of crop production. And he brought, you know, what we all consider to be, you know, our grandparents' little sayings and little wisdom, but he he brought those to a classroom. And, uh, you know, a couple of those stick in my mind. One was when you're trying to fence in a pig, how much of the pig do you have to stop? All you got to stop is that eighth of an inch on the very tip of their nose. You don't got to stop the whole pig. All you, so effort or unity of focus, I think. Unity of focus, there's your scientific term. But I have been blessed in my life with so many good people who gave me bits and pieces. And uh, I am mentoring young people who not only, you know, share a love for the land and a connection to the farm, but they have that curiosity, that curiosity of how do I do this? How do I do this? How do I survive in this place? How do I make this place bloom? How do I make this place healthy? So you gave me a big question and I gave you a rambling answer. And so I'll call it a draw <laughs> on that one. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> uh, I would maybe just ask you as, as we start to kind of wrap up here, are there, I mean, you've talked a bit about, about how you feel about government programs. Are there any things that I guess could happen in the farm bill or ways that they'd change it that, that you're really um, concerned or preferred would not happen that would hamper, hamper your farming? Um, I guess that's, you know, more stringent regulations. Um, but yeah, is there, I guess when you know when thinking about a, a wish list as as we're talking about you know the farm bill and and some of the programs that you don't use is there anything that you you think man I really don't want to see this come out of um, this big package so that's a that's a good question Ryan I I'm not a big fan of direct subsidies, although in, in fairness, I have taken them, Ryan. I have taken them. Uh, one thing, you know, so thinking of it in the big question, we're all, we're all in this, we all have a paradigm. We all have a way of looking at the world. And, you know, sad to say, uh, I think that many people are lazy. I think that human beings are lazy, that we only work as hard as we have to, to, you know, satisfy our basic needs. And, uh, you know, it's, it's not, it's not scholarly, but it, that has been my experience. And so we we're in this paradigm 
And part of this paradigm is that we're in effect as a society paying huge subsidies to operations that just continue to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And I think that paradigm shift is needed or it will be forced upon us through environmental, you know, irregularity and, and, you know, cycles, you know, nobody likes to use the term global warming. Uh, so you call it whatever you want. Even my most conservative libertarian friends will concede now that there are irregularities in the environment. I mean, it's just, it's in your face so much that everybody understands that our environment is changing. Back to back to the back to the question. I think one tool that is a good uh, expenditure of, of government money in the rural areas is you know trying to foster adoption of rotational grazing or uh, cover cropping. You know perhaps you know a direct subsidy for cover cropping. I think that on a civilization scale and on a financial scale that as a civilization, we cannot continue to pour money into a system that is harming the environment. It's just counterintuitive. We have this relationship, you know, ag producers and taxpayers. And for years, we had this uh, paradigm where if you give us a little bit of direct support through direct farm subsidies, we will give you cheap food. That paradigm is, is starting to break down. And, uh, you know, COVID-19, people going and seeing empty store shelves, that scared them. They're like, where did all my tax dollars over the last 40 years go? You guys guaranteed me lots of food, cheap. And, uh, you know, that was a crack in the paradigm. Uh, some of the environmental change is, is a crack in the paradigm. Uh, you know, let's say you go to New Orleans and you go south on the Mississippi River, and you see the uh, dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico, you know, that'll, that'll challenge your paradigm. That'll challenge your paradigm. And so anyway, there's going to be a paradigm shift coming, whether it's forced upon us or whether, you know, we're shocked into it or or forced to approach it. But uh, from my perspective, if we were able to tie any government subsidies or all government subsidies that go to the rural areas to some kind of conservation, soil health, uh, if we were able to, to, to create a new compact with the taxpayers of America. And it was based upon, you know, some kind of, you know, I know carbon is, carbon is a big term now. It will probably not happen in this Farm Bills Act because I don't think we're quite ready enough. I think we're too entrenched in our paradigm to get booted out of it. But uh, maybe the next Farm Bill or the Farm Bill after, there's going we're going to have to re-engineer the covenant between taxpayers and producers, farmers, uh, because the inconsistencies are becoming too glaring. You cannot sweep them under the rug anymore. You know, the war in Ukraine, uh, the crazy run-up we had this spring to wheat prices. You know, I, I know that that is going to increase the price of bread in our stores. I mean, it's just night following day. Now, luckily, uh, since there is so little wheat in an actual loaf of bread, you know, the price difference is not huge, but it's there. We're all seeing food inflation. My wife, you know, every time she goes to the store, she comes home. And so... There's another crack in the paradigm. 
I the reality is is that taxpayers and consumers way outnumber farmers. And every time they start to perceive that the farmers are driving around in the new trucks and my food bill just doubled and my gas bill just doubled and my heating bill just doubled, uh, that's a bad optic. And so change is coming, whether we, you know, try and get above, uh, ahead of the curve or whether we get, you know, or whether the wave swamps us, change is coming. It's always coming. It's always coming. And so... You know, but I'm just this little bitty farmer out here in rural Kansas, and uh, I'm not obviously a legislator, and I'm not obviously uh, one of the architects of the new farm program, but uh, anything that would encourage any way that we could shift dollars from direct subsidies into conservation measures would be a good thing, and it would be, you know, Australia ended the direct subsidies and New Zealand is doing something similar. I'm not up to speed on it, but they're cutting, they're, they're modifying their farm subsidy structure. And uh, it's painful at first, but I think that long-term it yields a saner result. Up until the production system itself starts to fail. And then you may have to come up with some kind of direct subsidies. You know, if you allow market forces to run unchecked, you know, every acre in the corn belt might be corn. And then people couldn't buy a loaf of bread, uh, you know, because nobody decided to plant wheat because we could make a dollar more with corn. Uh, you know, there are market forces that we need to be aware of and that we need to, you know, exercise some degree of control on. But uh, in general, the market does a pretty good job of providing solutions and you know taxpayers shielding american farmers from the market in the name of saving farmers has yielded a system where we not only don't have cheap food we have fewer farmers and we have major supply disruptions and so you know i i change is coming zach change is coming it is, and the point there is, are we going to get ahead of the change or is it going to be forced upon us? So uh, the adaptation is really big. I think that in Kansas, certainly, there's an eagerness to try to adapt and to do implement more conservation uh, strategies. Uh, but uh, unfortunately, there is only a fraction of... Um, of uh, farmers that uh, who applied the conservation stewardship program and equip uh, that were uh, funded. Um, so uh, it, 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 maybe we can't uh, provide a condition for conservation right away uh, for those farms, uh, direct payments, farm subsidies, but could there be a sweetener? You know, uh, uh, a greater bonus if you uh, implemented conservation strategies. Uh, you know, uh, certainly we should prioritize more conservation uh, funding-wise in the farm bill for that collective good. And like you said, if we allow people to compete in a marketplace but still provide a, a collective benefit that is conserving our soils, our water, and, and helping to benefit our, our ecosystems, whether it's climate uh, or uh, uh, underground, um, then I think we're, we're doing everybody a favor. And like I said, that'd be a good use of, of taxpayer.
So in in talking to my European friends, they have a joke amongst them, and they like to say that America always does the right thing after they have exhausted every other option. In other words, we do everything wrong, and eventually we figure out, well, okay, this might be the right way. I don't think that we're ever going to get ahead of the curve, Zach, and, and head these things off. But I do think that we're starting to ask the questions. Uh, maybe not actively seeking for answers, but the irregularities or the anomalies are too great. And so American farmers are asking these questions. And, you know, I, I have friends in conventional agriculture. Actually, most of my friends are conventional, <laughs> follow conventional agriculture. And, uh, you know, they're asking questions too. Uh, I think that people understand that there is too much irregularity in the system and there uh, everybody's asking questions and we have not coalesced with an answer or you know the the answer has not presented itself just to go back a little bit i think that if we took the direct subsidy money instead of subsidizing production if we redirected it towards subsidizing farmers and what i mean by that is say we put a government program in place that said if you farmed in Kansas, you'd have to make it size relevant, but in Kansas, if you farmed 100 acres or more, and if you took a greater than 50% of your income off that land, that's how we define a full-time farmer, that you're at least 100 acres and you're taking 51% of your income from the land, that we offered that farmer some kind of subsidy to guarantee that he was a dollar above poverty line. You got me? Instead of giving per acre and crop insurance benefits on per acre basis that have just yielded us larger and larger and larger farms, if we instead targeted some kind of direct subsidy to uh, you know encourage young guys that if you can get a hold of a piece of land and if you commit to farming that land, we're going to give you a little bit of income subsidy as a bridge to where you become self-sustaining like I am at my point in life, uh, you know, society-wise, I think that would be a winning idea. And I think we could do it very, very, very cheaply. And I think that it would yield some unintended or unforeseen major benefits, you know, for our local communities and our local tax bases. You know, the reality is our local tax bases are just being eroded. Every time a farmhouse gets bulldozed, and and is you know exchanged for crop ground. We're we're losing tax bases that keep our local schools and our local counties and our local roads funded. We need people in our rural areas. We desperately need that. And I don't know the hows or the whys or the wherefores, but I know we're not doing the right thing right now. Sounds a little bit like uh, universal basic income, but for beginning farmers. That's interesting. Nobody's nobody's. Uh... <laughs> Nobody we've interviewed so far has brought that one up. So you were a pioneer, Jack. Um, I just want to say a few couple of things quick about you know your previous statement. What what came to my mind is as I think we in you know in the farming community we want to be on the wagon helping direct the the direction we're going instead of under the wagon you know under the wheels there and that's um, you know so we that we adapt to 
to change um, as opposed to being forced to would be a, a nice way to go about it. But like you said, that's a hard, a hard thing to come by. Even with all the the subsidies and and cheap food out there, uh, making sure that farmers are able to to feed themselves and get actually compensated, you know, get get more of that cut of the pie um, than they have even within this paradigm of cheap food and and subsidies, you know, that hasn't been a, a holistic thing that actually supports many farmers like you were talking about, and that's why we get bigger ones and fewer ones. So, um, yeah. Well, there's a lot of cracks in that paradigm. And they're, they're getting bigger. They're getting bigger, Ryan. And uh, eventually, eventually either the system collapses or, you know, change is initiated, you know, and we, we talk about whether, whether we're ahead of the curve or behind the curve or in the wagon or under the wagon, or, you know, there's a bunch of different ways to say that, but uh, people in rural communities have a, have a, uh, uh, I want to say an innate understanding of that, you know, that it's better to be, uh, my sister has a saying, it's better to be the uh, windshield than the bug. Uh, (laughs) That goes back to some of our conservatism as, you know, people that live in rural areas where you could not always rely on a solution. We had this innate understanding that eventually you have to build a solution. Uh, uh, you you have to figure out how to survive. Nobody's coming in to save you, and so I don't know. I don't know. Change is coming. There, I said it for like the tenth time. Well, thanks so much, um, and thank you to our audience for joining us for this episode. Uh, this Kansas Rural Center Farm Bill podcast series is brought to you by generous funding from the National Healthy Soils Policy Network. To learn more about NHSPN, visit soilpolicynetwork.org. Thank you again to uh, my co-host, Zach Pastora, communications coordinator, Charlotte French-Allen, and most of all, thank you to Jack Geiger, who let us interview him for this episode. Check out what Jack is up to on his YouTube channel, Geiger Farm. To find out more about the Kansas Rural Center and our work, visit kansasruralcenter.org, and please join us at our annual Food and Farm Conference in Salina, Kansas, on November 11 and 12, 2022. We hope that you can join us. Thanks and share this episode with friends. And if there's something you'd like to see featured in our podcast in the future, please reach out to us at media at kansasrollcenter.org.